The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the sixth chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus said, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. I hope you don't mind that after not having seen you for three weeks, I have three times as many things to say to you this morning, so get comfortable. This is going to take a little while. I'm glad you laughed at that. I didn't know if that would be funny. I'm not going to preach any longer, but I am going to preach about today this text that stands so vividly in the mind's eye of our world. Those words, judge not, judge not, that's all that people care about in this passage, just those two words, probably the world's favorite words that Jesus has ever spoken. Judge not. It is the easiest thing, it's the easiest thing to apply God's standards to other people. It's the easiest thing to take a checklist of God's laws, his commands, and to measure other people against them. It's the easiest thing, and in fact, it is the devil's favorite thing to do. That is how the devil works his way into the hearts and consciences, even of Christians, leading them to despair, by showing them how they've failed to measure up to God's law, because goodness knows we all have. It's a devilish thing to apply so easily God's standards to other people. Take, for instance, this passage that you know well from 1 Corinthians. It's a passage that's often used at weddings. It goes like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's the easiest thing to hear that passage and to think about what somebody else has done. He was not patient. He was not kind. She didn't put the best construction on everything. She tried to have her own way. He was irritable. He was resentful. How easy it is to hear this passage and think about how someone else has failed to love you. It's the easiest thing in the world to apply God's standards to other people. This is often what happens when folks come to church for the first time. They are surprised when, for instance, they're told they can't take communion. I thought Christians 
We're supposed to be loving, judge not, applying God's standards to someone else. Or in marriage, this is when it cuts closest to home. In marriage, when we apply God's standards to the other person, instead of recognizing that we ourselves are called to give up our lives for our beloved. It's the easiest thing, it's a devilish thing to apply God's standards to someone else. In the first place, these words, judge not, condemn not, forgive, give, those words are about you. They're not about someone else. They're not about what someone else may or may not have done to you. They're about you. Those words, judge not, are used to stop any criticism from ever coming our way. Maybe you've used those words yourself. But notice the irony that at that moment, when you're thinking, stop judging me, what have you done to the person to whom you are speaking? You've gone about and judged them. You've taken their criticism and you've assumed that it is malice, that it is ill will, that it's meant to hurt you. When we say judge not, we should pause. When we're tempted to level that accusation against someone else, we should pause and ask why that criticism hurts so badly. Maybe, just maybe, it's because it's true. Maybe, just maybe, it's because it comports with what God's word says. Maybe the reason we react so negatively when others judge us is because they're right. And we have something for which we need to repent. These words, judge not, they're about you. They're not about someone else. Now some people, it's important to observe here, some people are called specifically to the task of judging. And you might think of some various obvious, very obvious examples like a judge in a courtroom who has a gavel in his hand. He must judge with equity. No partiality. If there's a crime that's been committed, there must be a sentence. A judge is called to judge. But so also are any persons in authority. For instance, parents are called to judge their children. That's in the nature of discipline, to make judgments about your children. It's in the nature of Christians to make judgments about God's word. That is, whether or not God's word is being taught truly and purely. When you hear someone claiming to speak on behalf of God, you should judge whether or not they are actually speaking from God's word. Some people, according to their station in life, are called to judge others, and that's a good and godly thing. It's according to God's governance of the world that some people have that task. And I think the most important of all is parents over their children. But for the rest of us, in every other relationship, these words hold true. Judge not, condemn not, forgive, and give. All of that is captured well in what Luther says when it comes to the Eighth Commandment. I think you know this. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. That's the commandment that God gives. And Luther explains that that means we should guard and protect our neighbor's reputation with our lives. When our neighbor does something that appears sinful or wicked, we should put the best construction on it. We should explain everything in the kindest way. You know how hard 
that is. And yet that is precisely what God means when he says, judge not. Chalk it up to weakness. Chalk it up to a bad day. Chalk it up to anything except for sinful, wicked malice. That is what the devil does. Instead, explain everything in the kindest way. Look at the one who sins, the one who has wounded you. Look at that person as wounded themselves, also in need of a savior. Bend over backwards, not to condemn. Bend over backwards to spare your brothers and sisters from accusation. Now at this point, every time I hear Luther's explanation to the Eighth Commandment, I think that that is impossible. How could I possibly explain everything in the kindest way? If I do that, if I put the best construction on everything, I will get run over. I will get taken advantage of. I will become someone else's doormat. The answer to those objections is very simple. (laughs) So what? So what? This is what God has called us to do. The question here is, who are you loving? If your main concern is that you don't want to get run over, who are you loving? Are you loving your neighbor or yourself? You cannot possibly love anyone else when you are thinking only about yourself. You also can't love anyone else when you cannot see clearly. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he tells this wonderful parable about the fellow who has a plank in his eye and he's trying to take the tiny little speck out of his brother's eye. How can you possibly help your neighbor, your brother, with what they need most desperately receive the forgiveness of sins from God and his mercy? How can you help them with that when you have something obscuring your own vision? And so we should take that seriously. Before we try to help anyone else, before we try to show love to anyone else, we should look into our hearts and see whether we ourselves are guilty of the very same sins they commit or perhaps even worse ones. Now, this is not to say that in order to help your neighbor, in order to help your brother, in order to call out their sin so that they might receive mercy, you have to be perfect. That's not possible. Nor is that what we are aiming at in this life. Instead, what you should aim at is humility. To recognize that the very same sin into which your brother or sister has fallen is a sin into which you can and may fall yourself. So humble yourselves, but do it. Remove that plank from your own eyes so that you can help your brother. This is the great thing about this passage that is so overlooked by the world. When the world stops with judge not, they think that that is the gospel. Nobody's going to judge anything anybody ever does, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is here at the end where Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your brother and sister in need because that is what you are for to love your neighbor. Work on the sin in your life. Discipline yourself, not just for your own sake, but so that you can love your neighbor even better. What a precious gift it is that God gives to us. That when he identifies the sin in our lives and he calls us to repentance, he does it for the sake of everyone around us. 
so that the, we then can also speak with compassion, with credibility, with honesty, with gentleness, with genuine concern for those who are caught in the very same things that we ourselves have been caught. Be merciful, as your heavenly Father is merciful. If you remember nothing else from this passage, this is what you should remember. Be merciful, as your heavenly Father is merciful. How has he shown mercy? When he reveals himself to the people of Israel, he declares his name to Moses, and he says that he is a God who is patient and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. That is how God is merciful, patient and slow to anger. He does not destroy us. Just think what we deserve. Every moment, every stray thought is wrecked with sin, and yet he does not destroy us. Neither should you try to destroy your neighbor. Even more, he himself advocates for us. God sent Moses to the people of Israel so that he could intercede for them, so that when they sinned, Moses would remind God of his mercy. And that's precisely what Moses did. The very same thing that Jesus does as he's dying on the cross and with his dying breath, prays for the very people who are nailing his hands and feet into that cross. Father, forgive them. That is how God shows mercy. He has compassion on those that the world rejects, dining with sinners and tax collectors because he recognizes that it is not the well who need a physician, but the sick. Those are the ones to whom you should show mercy as God shows mercy. Those who are sick with sin, those who are lost, those who are strained, those who offend you, those who hurt you, those who sin against you, those are the ones who need your mercy, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. God gives us a stunning example of mercy, and that really is what scandalizes the world. I know that at times it can seem to the world like the high standards, the high moral standards that God has for the world, that is what is such a scandal and a stumbling block. Don't do this, do that. The world doesn't like hearing it. But the real scandal is this. That for those people, that is all of us, who deserve nothing but hell, God has shown mercy. The world cannot stand that. The world wants people to get what they deserve, but God has shown mercy. As much as God is our example in this lesson for how not to judge and how not to condemn and how to forgive and how to give, even more than all of that, that is our starting place, that God has done those things for you. You have not been judged. The condemnation has been lifted. Your sins have been forgiven and in fact are forgiven. Day after day, his mercies are new every morning. He has given to you in abundance far beyond what you could ever have asked for. All that you need for this body and life, your daily bread, he gives to you out of his fatherly divine goodness and mercy. You don't deserve a lick of it, and yet he loves you so that he gives it to you. He gives you all that you need for this life, this earthly life, and even more, he gives you everything that you need for eternity, filling you up with his spirit, giving you a new heart, forgiving your sins so that you can live according to his promises, 
according to his word. He gives you, with this beautiful image, a full measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It's like you go to the lumber store and you ask for 12 feet of board and they give you 16. You ask for a bushel of grain and they take that grain and they shake the basket so that there's more room on the top and then they put more on top of it. It's like somebody pours you a glass of wine and they don't just give you two ounces in an eight ounce glass, but they fill it to the top so that in order for you to drink from it, it has to spill. That is what your heavenly father has done for you, given you such abundance beyond measure because he loves you. His love so grand for you that he sent his son to die for you, to take away all your sins, to rescue you from death and the devil, to give you eternal life. If all you had were this command, judge not, condemn not, if that's all you had, it would be a burdensome thing. But because God has been merciful to you, you can now count it all joy. When you have to suffer, when you show mercy and it costs you, when you are kind and compassionate and it hurts you, you can count it all joy. Because you are not giving from your own mercy, but you are giving from your Heavenly Father's mercy, which is endless. There's this beautiful picture that we had in Genesis chapter 50. This is the last thing I'll say. I'm almost done. In Genesis chapter 50, the story of Joseph's brothers who were tormented by the sin they had committed against Joseph their whole lives long. Anytime anything went wrong for them, they thought it was God bringing vindication for the way they had treated their brother. And now their father is dead, and they're terrified that Joseph is going to bring wrath to bear on them, and so they plead with him, Joseph, please don't punish us. Joseph asks this question. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And the implicit answer is, no, I'm not in the place of God. I am not here to judge you. But the great irony of this passage, and I have to give credit to Pastor Bruce Tim of Redeemer in St. Cloud. He said this to me, and I thought it was just an amazing insight. Joseph claims not to be in the place of God, but look at what he does. He shows mercy to his brothers. He is in the place of God. He is doing exactly what God does for us. Do not fear, he says. The same words that God speaks to you. Do not fear. I will provide for you. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That is what God does for you. Listen to him and believe his promises. To God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen. Amen.